So you're listening to more Coney Island on WFMU. I'm your host, Devin Levins, here every Tuesday from 8 to 9 p.m. playing the soundtrack hits. As always, this week we have special guests joining us. Not one, not two, but three. It's uh, Samuel F. Scott, Luke Butta, and Conrad Weddy, a.k.a. Moniker. They're alias for their soundtrack projects, and they also are the co-founders and one half of New Zealand's The Phoenix Foundation, formerly uh, Flying Nun Records Band and currently Memphis Industries, seven full-length albums out. But we're going to get more into their film scoring and TV production scoring history that involves, I guess, most notably for director-producer Taika Waititi, Eagle vs. Shark, Boy, Hunt for the Wilder People, and more recently, I guess, the What We Do in the Shadows spinoff TV series, Wellington Paranormal, as well as other directors such as David Wise, uh, This Town, and Pan Nalen's Beyond the Known World. Welcome to the show. Nice to Hi. see you. Thank you for having us. Hi. Hi, yeah, this is Sam. Hi, this is Luke. This is Conrad. I play guitar. My first question right off the bat, it's a little bit unusual, it's not unheard of, but how do you all co-compose? How do you divide the labor? How do you decide... Are you doing it all together, all in a room together? Or are you all taking separate scenes? And I know that this maybe happened naturally out of the band, but... Yeah, we do both of those things. How do you take on a new project together? Actually, for the Taika Waititi films, we shared a space. And so that was all done in the room all together. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, is a cool vibe. But basically, just because we lost our shared, our band space... We all set up a little studio in our own homes. And so now we just, we kind of work individually with a constant peer review process. And, you know, sometimes if you run out of steam on a, on a scene, you can send it on to the next person to have a go. Or, you know, we kind of give each other notes and we attempt to stick to some sort of concise sound palette or something with mixed success. I'd say we're pretty used to following the same path, even if we're not together. You know, we've made so much music together that we can lock into a, an approach pretty easy. I mean, and also some of the best, I think some of the best pieces of music we've done recently are things that have been passed around. So someone has an idea, someone else takes that idea, makes something new out of it. There was a lot of that in the last TV series we made, Far North, where there's just little ghosts of previous cues in the next cue going along people making music together for the first time that might be quite a tricky process kind of going how do i collaborate remotely You're, yeah remotely we've done it in so many different ways and you know through covid now or just through different life schedules you're in the studio for four hours and someone else is taking their kids to school and then they show up a bit later and you're burnt out and then they sit down at the computer and take over and start doing something else and that's kind of always been the way it's worked for us originally when it was the band in a space shared together 
were you all kind of knocking things out with instruments in hand or was it like, hey, I'm going to go in there and work on this for a while? And, you know, people kind of like share files these days and pass them around. Is it maybe I got a knife idea for this and maybe you can add on to it? Or are you guys sitting there literally jamming as a band <laughs> to, you know, some visuals or something like that in the early days? It's always a mixture, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's always a mixture. Sometimes someone will bring in an idea or a riff or a progression and we kind of collaborate on it or something comes up when we're all together. It's quite a dynamic process. I mean, sometimes one of us will become the engineer or the producer for the other person. If someone's got a lot, you know, if someone's really buzzed on an idea, they'll charge ahead. And certainly like, like when I think about Hunt for the Wilder People, we were all together, but we were doing, sometimes the flow was really different. I remember there was a day where I had a, a tiny scrap of an idea for a song. It wasn't really working. Luke got an acoustic guitar, went and wrote something basically completely different, but from that initial spark. But he went and sat out in a field. I think he took a chair out into the middle of the football field and just played the song for like two hours while me and Conrad worked on a little synth idea or something together. And then Luke came back in and was like, okay, I've got it. So it was this kind of like we were all, you know, working collaboratively but also in this very sort of unusual process but that unusual process feels quite natural the funniest thing though the most ridiculous bit of the hunt for the wilder people process was when i set up in the only other room that there was in the space which was the bathroom and so i actually had to put the mic stand on the toilet and recorded a song in there while you guys were working <laughs> right. on That's something true. else <laughs> so um that was studio b but uh, also, I, I just I wanted to bring up for Boy, we're actually working in a in our friend's studio, uh, Lee Preble, who we've worked with for a long time. And I recall Conrad came in with an idea, this a very simple little repeating motif, and we basically just went into the room and recorded the three of us playing it for a long time, and that turned out to be. I don't know, that, that's kind of like one of the only times where we've really just, you've, somebody's come in with a strong, simple idea and the three of us have actually recorded simultaneously for a score, right? Usually it's, And it was like a couple of takes or something, eh? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Just, we just banged it out and that's called... Um, Waiho Bay from Boy. That's quite a nice one, actually. You can really hear that it's just a very simple performance and I think it became quite a core part of the sound of that film in the end. It just has a sort of... You know, just a warm feeling that really gelled. So super organic. However, I just wanted to bring up that in those um, initial Taika films, um, one thing that Taika was into, like they're not really heavily scored to scene, you know? It's like a, a piece of music that sets the tone and kind of goes across the scene. So I think that if you're doing something like that, you can sit in a room and musicians can play together. Later on, we did a you know a Netflix cartoon, Skylanders, and recently we've um, uh, scored the yet-to-be-released SpongeBob film, Saving Bikini Bottom. And those cartoons needed to be, as Conrad put yesterday, almost too much scored to scene for them to work. So it'd be almost impossible to do. I mean, that's just like, that's really classic scoring to every motion that, that happens on the on the screen. So it's, for us, it's very much what needs to, needs to happen. Whereas with the Taika stuff, you can just, you could just make some music. You can vibe it. 
vibe yeah. it a bit more. And part of the natural thing of that was that when Taika was making his first film, Eagle vs. Shark, he was listening to, I think, our second Phoenix Foundation album and an, an EP of Luke's, of Luke's solo stuff. And so there was music of ours in his head as he wrote it. So it was kind of a natural thing for him, for the music in the film to just kind of have this band feeling and yeah, not be too film scorey. But the ironic part of that was that when we were making our early Phoenix Foundation stuff, we were super influenced by um, Goblin, for instance who make all the Italian horror soundtrack stuff and, and Ennio Morricone, things like the Paris, Texas soundtrack. So we were actually, we were kind of always film soundtrack fans, but initially that was a way that we wanted to shape our band music in a different way. And then that just fortuitously gave us a different kind of life path. What came first, Eagle versus Shark or Boy? I know I know Taika was writing Boy before Eagle versus Shark, but... Eagle versus Shark was the first one made, and that appears to be your first film credit. I don't know if it is, in fact. Maybe you've done some other stuff before that. So was he a fan or a friend of yours? Like, was he just a fan of your music? He was writing to it, and then he contacted you to see if you might be interested to allow him to use your music and or write some music for him? Or was it you guys are old friends and that kind of thing, running in the same circles? We were we were running in the same circles. I mean, Wellington is a small town. If you can sort of mention anything you've heard of in New Zealand, they're probably someone we know. There was a studio in the city because, I mean, I guess it's probably you, you would have gone through the same stuff in New Jersey on a much larger scale where there was a lot of cheap warehouse space and um, young filmmakers and bands and musicians and things like that. And there was a, there was a warehouse space in town where... Taika would work with a lot of people and there was Brett McKenzie from Flight of the Concords and lots of musicians we knew and they would have big warehouse parties. So you just sort of meet these people who are making short films or making music videos and that's how it happens really, isn't it? You just, no great secret to getting film jobs. Yeah, I mean the the film people are wanting to get involved with the music people and the music people want to yeah. be involved with the film people. And With Eagle versus Shark, was that the first one that you really sat down and you wrote music for? Then I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, that was yep. our first. I think I did something before that, but it was very, very ropey. It was not. I didn't know. Did not know what I was doing. I mean, Eagle versus Shark is definitely the first thing we scored, but there actually isn't that much score in it. Interestingly, that was our first experience of, um, you know, kind of all of the things that you have to deal with when you when you're scoring a film, which is, for example, that Taika was very set on two of our pre-existing Phoenix Foundation instrumental tracks from our second album, Pegasus, almost as themes in the movie, in our perhaps na- naivety, really tried to do something else because we thought it would be cool to do original stuff. And I remember um, doing several versions for the, like the Meaty Boy scene, but he just wanted to stick with like nothing. I think we spent weeks on that. Oh, yeah, sure. That that particular scene was ridiculous. Yeah. We just were desperate to try and find score that wasn't Hitchcock. Yeah. But Hitchcock was the thing. I think we learnt. The track Hitchcock. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. the track is Hitchcock. Ironically, a song called Hitchcock by the band ended up becoming the thing which kind of got us into movies. So that's a pre-used song in the film? Yeah, yeah. Like something you had already been using, doing, yeah. And I Love You Awesome, that was originally created for it, for the film? That was created for the film in about 24 hours. And when I say 24 hours, <laughs> I mean, like, I kind of worked for like 24 hours on it because 
Taika was wanting to use a Who track for the start of Eagle vs. Shark, and then at the time it was unattainable. Unobtainable. Then we suggested a track by Bonfa, who's a Brazilian artist. That was going to yeah. be in the film, and that was great. And then I think we were about to go off on tour to the States, and they were going into the mixing stage of the film, and then the Bonfa track didn't clear, and they were like, well, we need something for the start of the film. Mm. Hang on, uh, sorry to, to be this guy, but I don't think it was Bonfa. I think it was more obscure than that. And yeah. the issue was that they couldn't actually find who owned it. Like they just couldn't find the information of the track. It was like it was a track called La Careta, I think. Right from a a record that I had. Oh, okay, right. For some reason I thought it was Bonfa. Maybe Henry it was Bonfa Bunko? at some other point. Henry Bunko or something? It was like, it wasn't Bonfa, but yeah, anyway. Despite that pedantry, the point of the story <laughs> is that then we had to make a track so quickly. So like, and and this was, uh, it was the band as well. So we I actually went from house to house with the recording device and then Conrad came over to my place and we kind of put, it was the most insane fast recording of something that we had no idea whether it would, it would work for the film because there was no sort of planning to it or composing. It was just sort of chucked together. And it ended up being very fun and making it in the film and becoming, you know, a track that people really loved, even though it's quite a ratty thrown together piece of music, but it's got some charm. It's great. I mean, it sets the tone and everything. Mm. And I guess as a side, but any chance any of you guys are fans of Joe Para? Do you know who that is? I love Joe Pera. You know the famous Who episode where he discovers Bob O'Reilly? Have you seen that? It's like seen... the most it's one of the most incredible is that, <laughs> TV. Uh is that that's like he's kind of very mellow and it's it's in a yeah. small town. I've seen about three episodes of it and I loved it. Yeah, there's one where he discovers the song Bob O'Reilly. He's like a music teacher at a school in a small town. I think it's supposed to be like somewhere outside of Buffalo, New York and but he discovers Bob O'Reilly on accident. He's just obsessed with it. But he tells a story, if you ever hear an interview with him, of him trying to get the licensing for it. Where, <laughs> because And he keeps repeating it. It repeats like 14 times. Right. So <laughs> you learn that they have to pay a new licensing fee for every, yeah. every time it gets restarted, which is insane. For but, every second. I mean, it, it's, it's worth seeking out that episode, the, the Bob O'Reilly episode. But. Mm. So yeah, and so it seems like there in the early days, I guess there was kind of a hybrid, right, of using some of your Phoenix Foundation tracks, one or two, kind of work their way in there, and then you were also scoring original music for it as well. That happens in Boy too, right? Yeah, the big song at the end. Do you have a preference of li licensing versus uh, scoring? I guess would you rather just write all original music for it when you hear something you wrote from years and years ago to like new? visuals does it kind of set you off in a way where you would prefer to just like can i just write something original here i think it's whatever fits the scene the best or fits the story the best that's kind of the buzz yeah maybe it, early on we were more like keen to try and make something new and i'd say these days it's more like how do we get the film finished and make everyone happy and make it make it all work and we don't have as much to prove i guess with boy being that it was the screenplay was being workshopped for so long through the Sundance Labs. Did that give you the luxury of having a lot more time to sort of write for it? But that that one is really kind of crowded with a lot of other music too, right? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of licensing um, in there. Were you working on that for a long time? We did have quite a bit longer on that. 
there's always a thing where um because sundance is like early in the year and in new, new zealand our, our big summer holiday is christmas and we always seem to be working on a film that's going to sundance or is for an american production company or american tv company where there's this huge panic right over christmas and i think that happened with boy in the end just finishing it was quite quite drastic and it certainly happened with Wilder people. Wilder people. We were working on it on Christmas Eve. We were working, at it, working on it on Boxing Day, New Year's Eve. Just constantly all through that holiday period, annoying our families by just going to the studio for 15-hour days when everyone else wanted to be going to the beach. So I don't know. There never feels like... You never work on a film where you feel like you've got enough time, really. It always ends up feeling like there's not enough. That's just sort of the nature of it. Right. If you're given the time, you'll fill it. <laughs> yeah. We had enough time on, on SpongeBob, though, eh? Yeah. SpongeBob, <laughs> we had a lot of time. It kept on being delayed. We were working on it for 18 months, which seems like a long time to me. You know, on and off. But it's right. it's weird because even if you have like a few weeks off, you, your, head's still in that, your head's still in the project. And it's quite a long time to be... In the land of SpongeBob, really? I mean, it's a great land. Don't get me wrong, but it's a, it's quite hectic. What happened with like what we do in the shadows? You guys ended up not doing, doing that one. Is it was that just like a conflict or something? Or uh, I think that one. Well, it was done by uh, friends of ours, Plan Nine, who who are really great film composers in Wellington and have done a lot of stuff. And I think they, they're quite known for their use of um strange instruments and i think because they wanted an eastern european thing and those guys have like bella Leica and yeah, stuff lots of acoustic instrument stuff and Old. and also it was um at that stage i think that was being directed a lot by jermaine clement who we've worked with a lot since but at that point we we probably didn't know jermaine as well but we ended up coming in and because it needed to go to sundance and they were finishing it over christmas and everyone in plan nine had gone away on holiday so we did get brought in at the end to make a few cues for the film. <laughs> and who did the TV show? Is it Plan 9 for the TV show as well? Or I think that... that's an American composer in the I end. I think it's yeah. Mark Mothersbaugh, isn't it? Oh, it's Mark Mothersbaugh. Yeah, it's only you're, right, just, you're, right, you're right. It's only just Mark Mothersbaugh. Who's that guy? Yeah. Oh, man. I've got to share this anecdote, which is slightly off off the soundtrack thing, but I was asked to uh, by Taika and Jermaine to come and watch. Well, they they did a lot of this, of asking their friends to come and watch different cuts of what we do in the shadows for, you know, audience feedback, but from their mates. And one day they called me up and I was extremely hungover. I'd had a very late night and I, you know, wa wandered down the street because as Sam says, it's a very small town. So literally it was like a five minute walk from my house down to Taika's house. And it was just me and Jermaine and Taika, the guys making the film. And they sat me on a seat in front of the TV and they sat behind me and I fell, I fell asleep. <laughs> and they were like, right, okay, cool. So middle of part of the film, boring. Oh, God. I think yeah. the first cut I saw of that film, it was because it was improvised. So it was like they were really improvising the edit as well. It's an interesting film. Really great. The finished product is so funny. Yeah, it was because I fell asleep that they they really put in the extra hours in the might, suite. You know, it they... could have been. You maybe saved that movie. After these yeah. these three Taika films, you guys, well, I guess even in between them a little bit, but other directors were, I assume, calling you, asking you for to, to help out on their projects. What else were you doing besides the Taika films? Yeah, well, we've done a lot of New Zealand TV 
TV drama stuff. You know, that's always been really good. It's just a, any new project you do, you learn a whole lot of stuff from. So, you know, great to work on a few darker New Zealand TV dramas. And then I think the next big breakthrough for us was getting this Skylanders Academy TV show with Activision, which was a Netflix cartoon. Was it like 20 episodes a season or something? 13. 13, 13 a season. Three seasons. Three seasons. Yeah, yeah. Wall to wall music, really. Wall to wall music. And it was, I mean, we were just using MIDI, but it was orchestral. And quite often each episode would have a different tone. There'd be sort of like a film noir episode or there'd be a sort of superhero kind of Marvel Universe episode or like a, all these different kind of genres. I think up until that point, a lot of our film scoring was us doing us doing us doing the music that we really liked and then this one was like going to film scoring school because we just had to just churn out so much different music you know suddenly we were it wasn't just a director that we were answering to it was like these different layers of executives I, I mean it was it was actually super rewarding even though it was quite hard just really honing the the skills and learning lots of different things yeah and they had a um it had a great cast actually the first season had um susan sarandon norm mcdonald and james hetfield uh voiced the he- a heavy metal werewolf which i'm bringing up in one of the episodes there is actually a a music battle between the heavy metal werewolf and his psychedelic evil spell weaving harp bone harp yeah and the fuddy duddy guy oh who was uh voiced by bobcat goldthwaite was voicing this kind of tripped out dude who used to be in a trippy folk band in the in the well 70s it's in the skylands so it probably wasn't the 70s there but let's just say it was a time inspired by the 70s and so there's like quite a, a prolonged scene which is james hetfield playing uh, psychedelic magic harp versing bobcat goldthwaite who's playing a tuba and uh we scored that a life highlight you can probably say that metallica has listened to your music yeah well i mean well definitely certainly you guys were big metallica fans when you were teenagers right so mm. it was, totally it was pretty we, could, exciting. we can say that maybe james hetfield has heard some of our midi tuba work because <laughs> <laughs> new zealand is so isolated right we're so far away from the rest of the world so anytime we have any little connection with like our heroes from the states or england or europe or whatever it is quite exciting even even though we're old bastards now it still is like quite a thrill like we had to do a, a made-up nonsense language version of road to nowhere by talking heads for a, a film called nude tuesday recently that had to go to david byrne for approval so, you know, we, we know that David Byrne approved our insane version of Road to Nowhere with, with Luke singing these, like, just nonsense words over the top. And so that's just fun to kind of think, well, it, it just imagine David Byrne in his New York apartment sitting there listening to us going, oh, yeah, this will do. This is fine. He's known to be tough sometimes, so it's good you got the, uh, the approval. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure. So I assume like uh, Skylanders, I mean, that's some big names associated with it. It's a Activision, you know, a big studio at that point. Was that the first one that you really did have producers really kind of on you as well as the show creator or directors? And I mean, it just must be tough with the animation and everything too maneuvering it all you know yeah it, it felt like a um it was a more complicated process but i mean it was our first connection with a music supervisor called karen ruckman 
who she was music supervisor for things like Pulp Fiction, Judgment Night. Come on, help me out, guys, because there's so many uh, things. Those are pretty big ones. Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Reality Bites. Yeah. Oh, Romeo and Juliet. The Rugrats movie. All these things. And so she's like just got uh, this incredible Hollywood experience, but she's got these New Zealand connections. She lived here for a bit as a, as a teenager and has moved back here now. So that was our first job working with uh, her company, Mind Your Music. And so, you know, she she got us the job and she helped us through it. And that was a kind of exciting new world that opened up for us, I guess. And so we worked with them again um, a few years after Skyland has finished this forthcoming SpongeBob film. And it's always tricky being in New Zealand and having that distance and trying to maintain, you know, any momentum you've got. But also COVID, as horrible as it was, broke down a little bit of that barrier of, of worrying about where someone is in the world. They don't have to be in Los Angeles to, to work on your film. And I'm sure that's that's the case for a lot of composers through the States as well, that it's like, it would have been like, oh, well, I'm living in the Midwest and I can't get these Hollywood movies. And then during COVID, people don't really care as long as you're doing a good job, then um, that's kind of what matters. I think also pe what people maybe don't realize is how important the uh, music supervisors and maybe music editors are as like a referral sources for composers, right? Like they place your music maybe temp your music in a cut and then the, then what is known as temp love happens you know and the directors or producers or whoever try to figure out how do we get the song how much is going to cost us why don't we just get these guys to score for us it might be cheaper than licensing it if some major label owns the sound recording or something like that etc cetera, etc cetera. but i don't know if you found that so far working in that way for you all but like the music supervisors are, are pretty important as uh, <laughs> referral sources and for future projects even years down the line when you maybe aren't their first call or yeah something. yeah for sure and i mean i think the again exactly the same as how we ended up working with taika i think karen just approached us about film stuff she had um met our manager who had, you know mentioned that we do film scoring stuff and i think she was aware of taika's films but i think more importantly than that she also just had our albums and listened to them and i think that's really always kind of been the case for us that you know the best connections we make are generally because of the band the music that we make for ourselves and that we just make to try and kind of connect as opposed to the music you do for jobs it's kind of it sort of has a different different power to it i guess now that you were saying like you learned a lot from that process and it was like kind of a crash course of film film composing school or whatever i assume is your preference though to get sort of the call more to be yourself like the the band or a variation of the band where it's it's kind of a little bit closer to like what your your styles are and what you're known for versus uh we need a chase theme that and we need it to we need you to kind of steer the uh, audience, you know, in a very stereotypical way or something, you know. I think it's sort of the the dynamic quality that I enjoy is actually all of those things is part part of what I like about it. So you you might be doing a a band thing one moment and then a a chase scene or a, you know a bit of synth music or whatever it is, it's the kind of dynamic quality that I really enjoy. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I if we're even 
any particular kind of band anymore. We've made so many <laughs> records and so many different styles of music that like, I don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> if, if it was like, make music that's like you guys, it was like, oh, that could be anything. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's exciting being able to keep changing hats through a project. Although you'd have to um, say, though, uh, Conrad and Sam, that probably really zany cartoon orchestral music probably wouldn't fall under the umbrella of what we are as a band. <laughs> no, that wouldn't fall. But that definitely falls under the umbrella of what we are as film composers now. Yeah, like, of course. I mean, course. I think five years ago I would have been like, well, I don't know how to do a um, woodwind run that gives you a sensation of magical danger for an evil spirit floating through a wall or whatever but you know now you kind of go oh yep I know the mechanics of that sort of scenario mm. although I I sort of I mean I kind of get what what you where you're um heading to uh, Devin I I feel like I probably do have um you know I'd love to do I think I mostly enjoy doing stuff that is closer to my heart so maybe strange synthy stuff but it's the challenge of doing things that are outside of your usual or outside of your taste maybe is pretty rewarding it's an interesting musical challenge to be yeah to be pushed outside of your comfort zone although if i was to be 100% honest i'd probably love to do just some very strange space films where we just can get to you know um phase white noise for 10 minutes while someone drifts through a through a, a wormhole yeah i was going to say that, that i think there are a couple of genres of film that we haven't got to make yet that are probably the closest to our hearts and that would be like very trippy sci-fi kind of stuff the original solaris or that kind of thing or very trippy horror films or a barbarian film <laughs> <laughs> you have a little more of a blank canvas or something right yeah something where you can um, make genuine where you can you can drive like yeah, what, yeah, some, what you're gonna do yeah something where we've just given license to be very very twisted i guess i was gonna say that's where it came from with 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 like the goblin stuff like the tenebra soundtrack and that's was such a big inspiration on hitchcock and that's kind of what got us on our our song hitchcock our song hitchcock <laughs> got to contextualize it that yeah, name yeah. is a our lot of so you know like being able to go to something that was just fully that would be really fun. In a way, Wellington Wellington Paranormal had elements of that, but um, that was a really interesting, if I can just flip to that project, because that sort of came in just around the time that we were finishing Skylanders, was doing the Wellington Paranormal, which is a spinoff of what we do in the shadows. That show was heaps of fun to make and pretty easy to make. And Jermaine was, was the showrunner on that, Jermaine Clement, and he was just, very fun to work with and we got to make lots of scary psychedelic music but we were ne we were basically never allowed to make it too good because the whole idea is that it's like this New Zealand low budget reality cop show so there always has to be this element of just crappy production music sound library sort of stuff to it so we've, we got told off that in some ways it's a testament to our incredible professionalism that we made sure that the music was not too good <laughs> well that would be pr probably 50 percent <laughs> yeah. of the notes because you know you get your notes back from the director and producer and stuff and <laughs> it's usually like you know this emotion isn't right or this needs to have more energy but 50 percent of the notes on wellington paranormal was we're like, oh, this sounds a bit fancy. C 
can you do something a little bit crappier? Yeah, too, too slick. slick. I assume when you got the opportunity, the call or whatever for Skylanders Academy, it's a little bit daunting, and you're you're probably asking yourselves, are we able to do this? Are we equipped to do this? And it looks like a tall mountain you're going to have to climb. And then when you get through it and you see um, you can do it, it's probably um, you know very very re- rewarding. But then you have to like pick and choose how many of those big projects you're 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 going to do, just because they are so challenging and time intensive and all the different factors and whatnot. And like you said. It'd be great. It, I mean, that's the that's what I think is probably great about keeping your band going, and you can jump back and forth, and you're not doing the same thing day in and day out. You're not just a soundtrack factory, <laughs> you know, and um, you have the the ability to to mix your days up or your years up, where you're not just doing one thing over and over and over, and you're not pigeonholed for one type of film as well. You can kind of do comedy, and then you can do um, a TV series, whether that's you know, something in the horror genre or, um, you know, animation or whatever. Wasn't uh, Night Raiders, was that, that's sci-fi. Yeah, and that, right? actually that was a film. They just, they don't go to space. So I think that when Sam says sci-fi, he just means <laughs> in space. Yeah, I mean like, yeah. kind of synth sounds the whole time. Boo! Night Raiders was a very, there was a very free and I'd say avant-garde kind of perspective to what we were asked to do. And that which was the director really wanted, because it's quite, it's quite a realistic sci-fi film. You know, it's, it's this kind of post-apocalyptic Canada where the First Nations people are prisoners of imposing American imperialism. Uh, and are put into military camps and kind of reprogrammed and things like that. And then there's this kind of sci-fi, magic realism kind of fantasy element to it. You know, and it's, it was quite, it was all um, First Nations filmmakers and actors and everything. So quite an honor to be asked to work in that world as we're all, you know, white boys from New Zealand. So I think we uh, we don't take it for granted that we've kind of got, this little world we can work in through working with Taika where we do get to work in these quite special spaces but they certainly didn't want us to make you know pretend Native American music like that would have been an insane thing for us to do and would have required different composers for sure but what we did get us to do was make stuff that sounded like it wasn't wasn't influenced by western traditions futuristic but was futuristic in a way that technology had been corrupted and lost and forgotten so it had to sound like stuff that were instruments that didn't relate to orchestral things and didn't sound like lots of fancy studio production kind of synthetic things either conrad went about creating new instruments out of garden tools (laughs) and we did a lot of things a lot of sampling and mangling and then creating things which were like organic but very very twisted and yeah creating instruments that we could share there was a lot of um at the start of the project there was kind of sampling and creating instruments that we then all used like vst instruments and contact and and stuff like that but they weren't not pre-existing vst instruments ones we just made ourselves sampled sampled rakes and things like that bowed garden rakes and um, spades. So are you doing the majority of the recording still 
in your home studios versus going in and like getting all the music together and recording like Skylanders, for example, were you recording in an outside studio for that? Like some of the more orchestral instruments or were you? Skylanders was all, all in the box. All in the box. So there was no, even if they'd had a budget for orchestra, there was never going to be enough time because every single cue had to be completely bespoke. Apart from song, apart from the songs, apart and, from songs and yeah. guitars and yeah, all yeah. of that stuff. But. So things that we can play, we played them. I yeah, I mean, with Skylanders, it seemed that the um, the workload and the time pressure was so insane. I sort of don't know how a single person would have been able to do it. To be honest, we were the three of us were working full time the whole time, and sometimes still feeling like we were only just finishing things in in time. Yeah, we would get sent an episode and it, it might be due at the mix like eight days later. And it would have about 40 music cues. Yeah. Even if some of them are only 10 seconds, you still, still got to, you know, you still got to make it. And it would be a whole lot of orchestral stuff and then there would be like they'd need something that sounded like the Beatles in the middle of it t- to make a joke land. So, so we'd have to um, invent a little pretend Beatles song, do that and three hours and then yeah. move on to the next thing so it was crazy but also the time constraints meant it we just we just had to do it you get the notes back change it and then that's it it's done you move on to the next episode so there wasn't it's just making me think of um what the sort of pluses of there being the three of us and the fact that we come from a band environment which means that we can write you know we're songwriters as well mm. and it kind of just means we can pump out quite a lot and also sometimes if you're not if you're finding it hard to get into a into a project, the other two, you know, can either one pick up the slack or two can actually kind of just inspire you with their with their energy. Yeah. Um and those are the those are the great things about, I think, about that. I think there's quite often a case where if something's proving difficult and one of us nails a an idea, then that can kind of motivate the rest of us in a way. I mean, I've I've spoken to some of these old older timer TV composers over the years, and and like you know pre what we're talking about now with like these cable TV series where they were they'd get hired to do the music for a season could be like twenty or thirty episodes, you yeah. know, and they were they would their schedule would be like Monday morning, I get the the show twenty two minute show or whatever they start writing on Monday, Tuesday or the Tuesday you send out some demo or something like that, like overnight it. And then, you know, they would spot and they'd have a spotting session somehow in there. And by Thursday or Friday, they were actually in a recording studio recording it and then repeat. That was like one episode and then the next week and the week after that and the week after that. It was just like such a grind. And also there wasn't the internet. So they were like overnighting stuff to each other. And I just don't even understand how I, they did it. I don't understand you know, Just 20 years ago, let alone. But even now it just feels like a grind because there's so much music that has to be made. Yeah, but the MIDI instruments are so much better these days, I guess. Yeah, and all the fancy orchestra libraries that you can spend tens of thousands of dollars on do sound really good. But in saying that, we did just recently use the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra for the SpongeBob movie, and the difference was ridiculous. It's just so much better using a real orchestra. <laughs> but, you know, it's so rare that a film company wants to actually pay for that. But you do you do have meetings quite often where there will be someone in the room who will be like, 
and when are we going to record the orchestra? And then you see the, the other producers kind of go, uh, <laughs> that's not in the budget. And it's like, well, can the composers not pay for it? It's like, but you know, it is no. a huge, it is a huge expense. SpongeBob is all real orchestra. Karen really pushed for that one. Eh? She pushed so. for that. And, and they just had that. I think she said they just right from the start, Paramount wanted it to be a real orchestra and were prepared to do it, which is just, they're a very good orchestra. So they did like Hobbit and, you know, they, they do quite a lot of scoring stuff for Peter Jackson and things like that. So they're, they're a world-class orchestra, but certainly, you know, it's a bit more makeshift here in, in terms of the facilities and stuff. Whereas I guess in, in LA, there's a lot of, there are orchestras who just record for film every day. It's interesting that you're calling the studio that we recorded it in makeshift. <laughs> well, it's a very <laughs> fancy a giant, <laughs> A giant Neve room and a giant SSL room. And the amount of um, fancy Neumanns in the in the recording room, I'm outraged that you call that makeshift. But they have to bring in a lot of stuff. They have to bring in a lot of stuff and they have to like, you know, it is, it's a, such a complicated thing to record an orchestra. And it's not like the scoring stage at, you know, Warner Brothers where it's just, it's there every day set up to do it. The Clint Eastwood stage the clint eastwood stage yeah mm. well they i know they have and this became even more kind of figured out during lockdown and stuff but like in iceland they have a remote recording studio for orchestra and i think like a, in the czech republic they have something like that so the composer technically doesn't have to physically go out there yeah you can wa watch it like via zoom or whatever whatever right video conference but um obviously it's going to be preferable to be in the room because you'll hear things and see things you you may not pick up on if you're just on your computer but um how many piece orchestra was that well we did the strings and woodwinds one day and we did horns another time and um i think all, all together it was probably about 50 something do you guys now in your your live set as the band do you bring in film music sometimes we haven't but we've thought about it we've thought about whether we should have some kind of live version of what we've done because we've done so many films now i guess we've been doing film stuff for about 16 years they got to yeah. be known yeah like in new zealand some of them have to be kind of popular right um because people have seen these films hunt for the wilder people and boy were huge films here boy was the highest grossing new zealand film in new zealand until hunt for the wilder people came out and then that was the highest grossing New Zealand film and I'm sure in a live setting people would love to hear some of that music right yeah there's yeah there there's music that that people like from them yeah yeah for sure I don't know why we haven't done it you, we probably haven't done it because we're too busy making other tv shows boy was on my delta flight out to California just I noticed yeah right so it's, oh, cool. it's being viewed you know to this day by new people um uh you know here in the United States as well yeah I think Taika got um in Boy and Hunt for the Wilder People, he really got like a balance of, um, you know, like they're light, but they're not, but they're kind of dealing with some more intense subject matter, but not in a, like, I don't know, they're just like a very enjoyable film that isn't throwaway or something. I don't really know how to how to describe it, but I think they're quite special, those two films. I think they've, they've got a very understanding um, attitude to children as well both those films just that it really gets it just has a really honest portrayal of of how mature children actually are i think and a lot of films that have kids in them i don't think quite get that that thing you know like um boy himself in that film he's really he's going through a lot of shit i just think it's it's a really refreshingly uncondescending 
kind of attitude mm-hmm. to children. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a different take and it's a universal story. I guess it is, boy, is Tychus reimagined childhood story. Yeah, I'm not sure how, like, I think elements of it. He grew up in that area? He grew up between that area and Wellington, where we're from. So I think he had two very different kind of childhoods. Yeah. What are you guys working mm-hmm. on now? Like both for the for the band and uh, film TV wise? Well, we've just finished this the craziest, busiest period of our lives, which was doing, you know, doing the SpongeBob thing and doing Far North, which um, I think comes out on Sundance Channel in, in the States early next year. That was quite an epic TV show to work on as well. Very Every episode was like its own kind of film, mini film. And now we're kind of in this like down period for the first time in about seven years. And so we should be making a new Phoenix Foundation album. That's like the theory. Once we stop feeling burnt <laughs> out, hey guys, we'll, we'll make an album. We yeah. might as well. Yeah. Once once I've had my beach holiday at the end of yeah. January, I'll be ready to do something again. It's been a few years. Like 2020 was your last album, right? Yeah. It feels like we just put yeah. it out, but no, it's been three years. But it's been a weird three years, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that that's a couple of those, two of those three years almost don't count. Yeah. Bands are just now starting to get out there and, and touring again, and, it's, and they're finding that everything's more expensive and less we just, uh, affordable. And it's, Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, touring is, it's a very, I mean, we're not here to talk about the, the music industry, I guess, but it is amazing how you used to put out an album and then you tour to support album sales, but now you, you don't have album sales, so now you put out an album to what to promote the tour that is supposedly your form of income but then touring is less financially viable anyway and it's just like why well like for instance but you know people talk about how bands are now t-shirt sales people like that's how bands make money but like the t-shirts we just made for our last tour were so expensive because we went for you know ethically sourced cotton and you know not sweatshop stuff and printed locally and everything you end up making sort of five dollars a t-shirt that's whatever everyone's seen like the inflation that everything has gone up you know from eggs and gas and plane flights and restaurants and food etc and then it just seems like the bands are still kind of getting paid the same yeah <laughs> charging the same getting the same it's like the inflation hasn't gone up for the art yet. yeah well it's kind of it's a luxury item isn't it but it's a luxury item that I think people don't want to live without. It's a constant, it's it's happening in cinema and it's happening in music is just the devaluing of it and what people expect to pay. But I think people are starting to go back to movies and, and movie theaters, right? Which is really, you know, it's like the screens are incredible, but also just hearing film music in a cinema is so much better. Just hearing all that bass and being surrounded by, oh yeah, you know, proper 9.1 sound and everything. I think it is like, you know, it, those intoxicating experiences where you where you don't look at your phone and you do actually get drawn into listening and seeing. And we need that right now because we're all losing focus <laughs> as humans. It's just such a better experience and it's more memorable. You wake up the next morning with it in your head, revisiting it, you know, versus on your TV it's or your computer, however people watch movies these days, it's almost dismissive. I mean, people watch movies on their phone phones a lot right you know they what they're listening through phone speakers and and in a way you kind of have to to sort of respect that as a format now and think like is this music cue good enough to translate to a phone have you ever have you thought that well mixing your albums even like i mean i i've i've been in studio situations where they say okay sounds great on these you know twenty thousand dollar speakers and 
let's go listen on a regular stereo, but then it's all, let's listen to it off of a laptop or a phone, you know, because that's how half the people in the world are probably going to hear it. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But we all do that at parties, right? Someone gets out their phone and it's like, oh, there's no Bluetooth speaker. Oh, I'll put it in a plastic cup to try and make it louder. I mean, I'm sure we've all had those experiences. And you sort of just kind of roll with it. That is kind of the power of music sometimes is that it doesn't really matter. You can spend so long trying to get it to sound right. But the stereos I grew up on were terrible mono transistor radios. I don't know if you guys were the same. But that's what I kind of would have in my bedroom. And I loved I loved listening to music on the radio and it sounded terrible. It didn't matter. But that didn't yeah. kind of matter. And, you know, you guys like in the 90s, you're probably doing rough mixes and going into a car like bouncing it to a cassette or a CD and then going, oh, yeah. everybody piling into the car and listening. And I think people are doing maybe a little bit yeah. less of that. And it's more now, I'll send you the MP3 and, and yeah, listen Email to it on it to your, your phone, phone with or without earbuds. Yeah, for sure. But that's a real thing. Yeah. I'd still love listening to new mixes in a car. I feel like when you get a halfway through a recording a track and you go for a drive and listen to it in a car, that's sort of, that's kind of the pinnacle yeah. experience for me. It makes me think about, driving around in luke's honda city my honda city yeah listening to music i mean that's a big influence on us as music makers is driving around in, in luke's car i remember listening to premier symptom the ear ep driving through the night probably fairly baked and probably uh, yep a lot of music listened to the passenger had to hold the discman on their on their thigh oh like, yeah because we drove because there was the thing like the disc, there was such a thing of the late 90s would be you'd have your Sony Discman with the auxiliary out into one of those cassettes that would go into your cassette player. And I still, I still like marvel at how that works. Right. How did that little thing pretend to be tape and convince an old cassette player <laughs> that there was music from tape passing over the heads? It somehow did. How? You leave your house without it and yeah. you don't have music for your drive. Yeah. Well, I thank you guys so much for your time and um, your music, you know, that you've been putting out and you consistently do. I'm excited to hear what comes out with the SpongeBob movie. I will be seeing the SpongeBob movie, it sounds like, to see uh, to see what you guys did exactly. It's pretty fun. The band's come over to New York a bunch of times a long time ago, and we definitely loved heading over to Jersey and getting like the fresh Mott's yeah. sandwiches, like they're deep in our in our um, hearts so we'd love to come visit you and maybe maybe get some italian subs i meant to ask you too about the the jules holland experience yeah it must have been wild to be on the show yeah that was that was definitely the biggest kind of exposure thing we've ever done going on jules holland we were like sandwiched between ryan adams and coldplay what year was that that was 2011 yeah 2011 mm. put it this way we yeah. were the only band setting up our own stuff they treat you well. You get to meet Jules Holland uh, separate from the show or anything like that. Does he come by? Yeah, he, he we met him. He was he was pretty nice. The uh, the Water Boys were nice. They were on that same show. They were cool and well, that was a different time. The band was a huge part of our lives at that point and then I think since then we've we've probably more zoned in on movie stuff, but it's good to get away from the movies and yeah. remember that we are a band and that is what we do. And that makes it all worth it, all, everything you go through when you get to do, you get a cool opportunity like that, right, to be on a, yeah, for sure. an was, interesting TV show and treated well. And 
I mean, it was just a, it was just a cool, it was a cool vibe to be in that um, BBC studio where they have filmed that show and Top of the Pops and stuff like that. Old Grey Whistle Test and, and Doctor Who, yeah. and yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's like two. You spend two days in the studio. You have like they do camera rehearsals. It's a, it's a pretty it's it's pretty full on actually. And just to be on a show where they take music that seriously, you know, where you, they're putting the, so much resource into music as opposed to a lot of things where you just feel like, you know, music can end up being an afterthought. But Jules Holland, it's like we're putting huge resources into the music. Yeah, where we're live music is the focus bands. It's very British, I think, that kind of focus on like live performance, music, TV. I love it. They'll, right. and they'll put like the biggest band in the world right next to, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers or Metallica or something right next to a band that's just breaking or just has their first hit or they're on their first record, you know, and then jump to like a band from a whole nother continent, you know? Yeah. And everyone gets the same. That's cool. Everyone gets the same respect in a way from the crew and the lighting. You you all get the same rehearsal time and every there's a lot of effort going into every single performance. From the crew and i think that's just that's so cool from kind of the same era as jules holland back in the day like you guys toured with split ends and you've done some recording in their studio over the years yeah is that right yeah so yeah we've done a bunch of things with with tim and neil finn did we played support for them on a tim and neil tour um and then we did a split ends tour and um uh, me and luke sung with neil at the hobbit they wellington they're auckland right? they're they're in, uh, they're auckland yeah so neil's got a great studio in auckland called roundhead where we've recorded did a bit of recording with him and things like that. I mean, as I said, if you can mention a New Zealand thing that you've heard of, <laughs> we probably know them because it is just such a small country. But Neil's one of those guys. He's always very supportive of, of younger bands. It's the same same goes for like the, the Flying Nun bands you were talking about earlier. You know, people like David Kilgore. He was really an early champion of ours and stuff. In fact, I got a I got a text message from David Kilgore. This this has got a WFMU connection. He was playing in Yola Tengo. And he was listening to our first album and on the tour bus with Yola Tengo. Oh. And uh, he texted me to say, just just listening to your album with Yola Tengo on the bus. And Cheers, DK. And, and <laughs> how, oh, that's cool. And how old were you, Sam? I was probably 22 or something like that, mm. 23. So that was, Whoa. and like the Clean are like probably our favorite New Zealand band. So to get a, a and you know, we're huge Yola Tengo fans as well. So to get that message, <laughs> it, was, it was quite surreal. Yeah. There's a huge clean FMU connection for sure over the years. Yeah. I used to do college radio out in California in like the late 80s and I had a roommate. Well, actually two people I did radio with. Well, one was a roommate when I did radio with. One is still out there. Um, I think he's in Auckland, but he's working for Peter Jackson doing visual effects. And I noticed that he had a credit on um, Hunt for the Wilder People. But the other one was like my roommate. I remember he did a study abroad or something for six months. And this is the late 80s. And he came back with just all these cassettes of Flying Nun bands. So that's like how it really got on my radar, like Straight Jacket Fits and yeah. Jean-Paul Sartre experience and The Clean and The Chills and Dead Sea and like all this stuff. It's like, what in the world? You know, so it, it, I was really into like discovering new scenes and um, record labels that are all kind of tied in like that. So it was like this whole exotic thing you know coming from the other side of the globe which was really cool so if i've always sort of kept one ear towards that direction you know you know what's uh, i haven't actually haven't been there what i find it um and interesting that flying nun seems to get a lot more uh respect 
or people are a, a, a lot more interested in in the whole flying nun thing in the states than they are in the UK. I'm always a bit surprised by that. Yeah, that it sort of had a much more of an impact in, on college radio in the states and in England. I don't know. Maybe there's like a colonial. Maybe they. I think maybe they did, they probably I did. Maybe then. they did. I think there's probably less colonial kind of condescension from England to New Zealand now, but because you know we're, we're you know our head of state is the king of England and all that kind of bullshit. But definitely you can hear. How dare you speak like that of the king? <laughs> Death to the king! I mean, you can hear the flying nun influence on '80s American alternative. You can hear it, and certainly in Pavement, but I think even earlier stuff. It just I don't know. There was a something about the DIY that sort of deadbeat DIY kind of vibe that resonated in the states, at least with musicians. You know, there's kind of an LA. There was an LA scene around the same time that was kind of similar. You know that yeah, whatever, you know, Dream Syndicate and the Three O'clock, or that might be a little bit earlier, but but had kind of the the really nice clean guitar sounds and um, you know very, I guess you know like smart, well crafted songwriting and things like that um but it's kind of global you would think that would be in the uk too i don't know is it i don't see i don't really recall a lot of those bands touring the united states during that time necessarily so i don't think it was a fact that like you guys were just circling (laughs) over and over the states or anything versus it's probably quicker for you to get to the uk right that's easier cheaper further away the uk oh it is everywhere everywhere is very far and and very expensive Apart from Australia. Yeah, the only place we can go is Australia. Everywhere else is oh, yeah. a miles yeah. away. Those Flying Nun bands got, I think they toured the States more later on based on like the sort of sort of late 80s, early 90s, you know, seems like Matador and Merge kind of signed a bunch of Flying Nun things and they did sort of, they were doing like band swaps with, with Flying Nun, like Flying Nun put out Matador things here and, and like Thurston Moore and Kurt Cobain like yeah, endorsing all these yeah. bands too, right? Yeah, yeah. That probably helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, so so just to reiterate how tiny New Zealand is for you, my son was in well, actually not the same class as Roger Shepard, the head of Flying Nun's daughter, but you know, pretty much just there's only about forty people here in New Zealand. I saw Martin from the Chills a few days ago. That's all around. Shane Carter from Straight Jacket Fits. Got Luke to come around to his place the other day to help him with some um, MIDI issues because he's doing some film scoring now. So he got Luke to come and help him out with some technical stuff. Mm, how to get his contact complete talking to his Ableton or something. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it is a small country. Well, thanks again. and Cool, man. See you, man. Yeah, man. Thanks, Devin. Groovy. See you later. Thanks again to Sam, Luke, and Conrad of the Phoenix Foundation, a.k.a. Moniker. Go to their respective websites, monikermusic.net and thephoenixfoundation.co.nz there's also i think for the phoenix foundation if you go to the band camp they have all kinds of merch and their recordings digitally and physical so be sure to check that out and uh, fans of taika watiti please i implore you to go check out some of his earlier new new zealand films snake versus eagle boy and hunt for the wilder people amongst all the other stuff that happened after that. So also my my conversation continues on the Morricone Island Interviews podcast. We get into much more detail with the band and some of the recording process. So check that out too, which should post later this evening or tomorrow morning at the latest. 